the theme for this morning's reading is a call for repentance. Actually, I might say that that's the theme for the entire season's lift. I'm sure it is. But this morning, let's look at our need for repentance in the light of God's offer of compassion and mercy. The prophet reminded the people that they need to incline their ears to God and listen so that they might live. He says that we're to speak the Lord while he may be near. He says that we're to forsake our ways and seek the will of God in our daily lives. And then we look at Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, and he's looking back to the time of Moses to drive home a point that the history of the Jewish people has been one long struggle to understand God's compassion and mercy. Paul's not talking about the first time that God had communicated with man. That, that began in the garden. And then later continued with Noah and later with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. The scriptures are filled with accounts of God revealing himself to men and women. And it's often not God's giving the people instructions for carrying out some particular task. Remember, we're the, we're the hands and feet of God here on earth. We're his eyes, we're his ears. God has used people throughout history to accomplish his purpose. And Moses was just another in a long line of those that God has used throughout history to reveal himself in the world. Some of us after coffee are looking at the Jewish feast that God commanded the people to observe in the Old Testament. Passover occurs again this year during Holy Week and reminds us of the night when the angel of death passed over the Israelites who were held in bondage in Egypt. That event coupled with the Exodus should remind us of Christ's death on the cross, followed by the empty tomb. And this is the ultimate revelation of God to all Judeo-Christian people for all time. Passover and Easter morning both celebrate the sovereignty of God over all history. Those events illustrate for us God's power over death. Passover in the Exodus is a story of men and women in slavery being released from bondage and guided toward a promised land. The Easter story is one of men and women being released from the bondage of sin and guided into eternal life. Men have been delivered not from being forced to make bricks without straw, but from the rat race of our daily lives. We need not be driven by cruel taskmasters nor by the pressures to strive so hard merely to achieve those luxuries and gadgets that the world seems to regard as essential to our happiness and well-being. The promised land that's been given to you and me doesn't require that we constantly strive to keep up with the Joneses. This morning's lesson tells a story again of the burning bush. A fact that a, that a dry shrub in a desert might ignite from spontaneous combustion is, is not all that unusual. There, there's no miracle in that event. But what caused Moses' attention was the fact that the bush was not consumed by the fire. That was a miracle. What Moses saw was the glory of God's presence, which can transform without consuming the burning bush was the presence of God in time and space. It has become a symbol of Moses himself and of his call to serve. God told Moses to take off his sandals because he was standing on holy ground. To take one's sandals off was regarded as a sign of respect and honor. 
Slaves were barefooted. They had no shoes. And so to remove one's shoes in the presence of another was to humble yourself before that person symbolically to become their servant. This was a meaningful form of respect. You all know the events that took place on Mount Horeb that day. God explained to Moses the task that God had chosen for him. And God told him the authority by which he would accomplish that task. And we know that Moses went on to do just that. But not without numerous difficulties along the way. That's interesting that years and years later, Paul would use the Exodus story as a means to remind the early Christians in Corinth of the destructive power of sin and the need for repentance. Paul told the people in Corinth, you have a written record of what happened to your ancestors that should serve as a warning for you not to desire evil as they did. Every generation has had the opportunity to learn from the mistakes of the past. And wise are those who do. Paul used the history of the Jewish people to remind those early Christians of what had happened to the people who lost sight of the great privileges with which they had been blessed. He goes back to their time in the wilderness. Now, some of you may have always thought of the Israelites of their time in the wilderness as being a terrible time of pain and misery as they wandered aimlessly in the desert. That's not totally the case. Once the children of Israel had crossed over the Red Sea, the scripture tells us that they were guided by a cloud by day, a fire in the sky at night. They received quail and manna to eat each day. They were provided with water as needed. And not only that, they'd taken all their possessions with them out of Egypt, but I suspect maybe some of the Egyptian belongings went with them as well. By today's standards, we might consider that to be roughing it. But by the standards of the day, they were truly blessed. And yet with all this, they failed. When the spies went into the promised land, all the two came back with pessimistic reports. And the people, rather than placing their trust in God and possessing the land, became afraid. And because of that, an entire generation died in the desert. When Moses was with God on Mount Sinai, the people rebelled and had Aaron make them a golden calf to worship, and because of that, thousands died. Paul reminded the people that during their time in the wilderness, the people began to indulge in sexual immorality. The scripture says in the book of Numbers that the men of Israel began to have sexual relationships with the Moabite women, and they enticed them into worshiping the Moabite gods, and because of that, tens of thousands of people by plane. He reminded the people of the time when the Israelites turned from God and were overcome by serpents who killed many of the people. God's chosen people had been given every opportunity and yet they were not saved from temptation and they paid the price for giving in to those temptations. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago when we looked at Jesus' time of temptation in the wilderness that no one is exempt from temptation. No matter who we are, temptation is a part of life. Now we learn to deal with it. It says a great deal about our character as Christians. And you know, the temptations that people in both the Old and the New Testament faced are the same temptations that you and I face today. There's the temptation of idolatry. Now I hope, I doubt that anybody here this morning has a little golden calf in the way somewhere at home. 
God said, you shall have no other gods before me. And yet I've said before that anything that becomes the most important thing in your life becomes your God. That may be your family. They become your grandkids, your job, your desire for success, your status within the community, a position within the church, your hobbies. Whatever it is that's the most important thing in your life, that's, that's your God. Show me a checkbook. I'll show you who God is. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Remember we heard those very words on Ash Wednesday. There's the temptation to push God into a corner. You know what I mean? Consciously or unconsciously, we often treasure <coughs> over God's mercy. We say, it'll be all right. God will forgive me this, this little weakness, this little sin, this little slip up. But Paul tells us this morning, don't put God to the test. Those are also the words of Jesus to Satan during his time in the wilderness. The other temptation that Paul talks about this morning is the temptation to grumble. How many of you have ever thought about grumbling? It's falling into temptation. I suspect that most of you have never thought about that. But when we find ourselves out of fellowship with our neighbor, then we're falling into sin. Paul says that we're to greet each day with a cheer, not a whine. So there's no guarantees in life. We need to be vigilant at the very moment that we think we're standing secure and we may fall. But if we are ever forever grumbling about what life has done for us, what somebody else has said about us, what somebody when somebody else disagrees with us, we will never recognize all the blessings that God has provided for us. And Paul ends this morning's reading by reminding each of us that there's nothing unique about our temptations. Others have experienced the same thing in their lives. They've endured it. Each of us is walking down a path where others have gone before. There are those who have stumbled and fallen, but there are also those who have passed safely on their way. Also, there's always a way out of every temptation. There's always a means of escape. God's mercy and and grace is always available to us. We'll never be tested beyond what we can handle. And I suspect we all need to be reminded of that from time to time. And we see here in the final verses that Paul uses another word for temptation. He says that it's testing. Testing will prove us a way out. The Greek word for tempt actually means to test. I said something last week, I think, about not tempered steel. We don't do that in order to weaken it or to destroy it. It's just the opposite. It's tempered in order to form it into something useful and make it strong. And then in our gospel lesson, we have two very strange stories. Initially, Jesus was discussing two separate events when people had been killed in tragic ways. And the first was an account of several Galileans who had been killed by Pilate's soldiers while they were worshiping. Scripture says their blood was mingled with their sacrifices. This is the same Pilate who attempted to wash his hands in responsibility for Jesus' death. But this wasn't the first time that Pilate had been responsible for the death of the Jewish people. Pilate's rule over the Jewish people was one of violence and destruction. And this had been just another example. Jesus was aware of the death of the Galileans. He asked the people, do you think that because these men suffered this way that they were worse sinners than other men? Seems like a rather strange question, doesn't it? 
There was also an account of 18 men who had been killed in action when a tower had fallen on them. And again, Jesus asked the question, do you think they were worse offenders than all the others living in Jerusalem? What was Jesus attempting to say? You have to keep in mind that the Jewish people always connected sin with suffering. And Jesus was asking you to believe that those men died because of their sins. He said, that's not the case. That's not the way it works. What was it? Job's friends had said, do that is innocent never perish. Well, I don't know about you, but I, I can think of a number of innocent people throughout history who have suffered and perished. But the Jewish people related suffering with sin, and Jesus said sin will have its results. And if you sin and fail to repent, there's a price to be paid. But don't attempt to equate pain and suffering with sin in every instance. Now, there are many times when our sinful actions do cause great pain and suffering, but not all pain and suffering is a result of sin of an individual. I believe there's another thing to be considered here, however. When Jesus was being asked about those who had been killed when the tower collapsed, he said, unless you repent, you will all perish as they did. And not long after this, in chapter 21, Jesus predicts the destruction of Jerusalem. He says the day will come when the walls of Jerusalem will collapse. In the year 70 AD, that's exactly what happened. The Roman army completely destroyed the city of Jerusalem. And many of the people fled to the temple for safety and refuge, and yet the temple was also destroyed. The scripture tells us that not a single stone was left on top of another. And yet thousands of people were killed as the city walls came fumbling down. This was the result, or was this the result of the actions of the Jewish people? Did this come as a result of their intrigue, their rebellions, their plotting, their own political ambitions? Did the Jewish people commit national suicide at the hands of the Roman army? Did Jesus see this unfolding when he warned the people? Was Jesus attempting to tell the people, if you insist on seeking an earthly kingdom and rejecting the kingdom of God that's been promised to you, it'll only lead to your downfall. I think that's a possibility. We may not say that individual suffering and sin is inevitably connected, but I believe that we can say that a nation that chooses a sinful path will in the end suffer for it. It's dangerous to attribute human suffering to human sin. But I believe that it's safe to say that a nation that rebels against God is on its way to disaster. And all the people share the suffering. I believe that history has proven that out. Let's take just a moment and look at the parable of the man of the fig tree. I said a moment ago that this morning's lesson is a call for repentance in light of God's compassion and mercy. This morning's parable from Jesus is a story of grace and warning. The story begins by saying that a man had planted a fig tree in his vineyard. And someone asked, well, why in the world would you plant a fig tree in the middle of your vineyard? I mean, vineyards are for grapes. Well, in that part of the world, it still is today. Some of you guys in the vineyard know what I'm talking about. But the soil is so shallow and poor that if you can find a place to plant a tree, you're going to plant it, even if it's in the middle of your vineyard. If you can find just a little bit of soil, you're going to use it. And so it's not uncommon for a man to plant a fruit tree now, there's several things I believe we can learn from the story. The fig tree had been given a good opportunity to be productive. 
I believe Jesus would tell each of us this morning that we'll each be judged according to the opportunities we have. I believe that's true of us as individuals and as a people. Never has a generation been entrusted with so much as we have. However, no, never has a generation been so answerable to God. I believe that. This parable this morning tells us that uselessness invites disaster. In some respects, evolution is the process whereby the strong survive. Those things that are strong and useful continue to grow and thrive while those things which are useless die out. They're eliminated. Ask yourself this morning, what about I? Am I using the gifts and the talents that God's given me in order to benefit the world in which I live? Another lesson to be learned this morning is that things that only take won't survive. The fig tree was drawing strength and sustenance from the soil, and yet it was producing nothing in return. That was a sign or a sign of sin. The fig tree, if you would. It took, but it was giving nothing back. There's two kinds of people in the world. We all know both of them. We have takers, we have givers. How would you describe yourself? How would your friends and neighbors describe you? Would those two descriptions be the same? And in one sense, every one of us is in death to life. We came into the world at the potential peril of somebody else's life. And we would never have survived those early years without the care of others who loved us. And we've inherited a, a, a Christian civilization and a freedom which we did not create. And so what's our responsibility to all this? To give to the next generation something better than we found. But thank God, there's also this parable this morning of a second chance. A fig tree normally takes three years to reach maturity. Generally, if it's going to produce fruit, it'll be done in the third year. And this tree apparently hadn't. But it was given a second chance. It's always Jesus' way to give man and woman a second chance. Peter could attest to that. Paul certainly could attest to that. And I suspect there's some here this morning that can give God thanks for second chances in their own lives. Our God is a God who takes joy in seeing the man who's fallen rise back up to his feet again. And he's willing to give us that chance time and again. But I believe that this morning's parable has one more lesson for us. There's a final chance. If we refuse our second chances, if we turn our back on God's offer of compassion and mercy, then the day will come when we may well find ourselves like the people in last week's lesson who came and found the door closed. Not because God had shut them out, but because of their own deliberate acts they'd chosen to shut themselves out. So as we continue through this season of Lent, remember the words of the psalmist, the Lord is full of compassion and mercy, slow to anger and great kindness. He's not dealt with us according to our sins, but rewarded us according to our, nor rewarded us according to our sinfulness. But as the heavens are high above the earth, so is his mercy great upon those who hear him. Be thankful this morning and the knowledge that we're called to repentance, but we also have access to God's compassion. 